This episode of Edge of Sports is brought to you by FreshBooks. It's smart mobile accounting designed specifically for freelancers and small business owners. You can try FreshBooks for 30 days on us with no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash edge and enter edge in the how you heard about us section. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have an unbelievable show this week. We are talking to not one, but two NFL Hall of Famers who played in the 1960s and 1970s amidst the black freedom struggle, amidst the formation of the NFL Players Association. They are Willie Lanier, Hall of Famer, Kansas City Chiefs, and Ken Houston, Hall of Famer, who played for the Houston Oilers and the Washington football team and is considered the greatest player to ever come out of the state. State of Texas. I'm actually going to start by speaking a little bit about the cancellation of a show in which I was a regular guest, the Melissa Harris Perry show on MSNBC. Uh, Her show was canceled by the Comcast owned MSNBC network, and I'm going to share my thoughts with you about this, and then I'm going to speak to one of the longtime producers of the show, who's now a writer for MTV News, Jameel Smith. And then after that, we're going to speak uh, to our Hall of Fame guests. So let me get started. This weekend, a new show was canceled, and I'm frankly really upset about it. The show is the Melissa Harris Perry Show on MSNBC, and the Comcast-owned network decided that Melissa Harris Perry's brand of distinctive talk, penetrating discussion, and taking on issues that definitely were not being covered by other Sunday and Saturday weekend news shows was just not going to be for them. Ties were severed, as an MSNBC executive put it, after Melissa, who I'm proud to count as a colleague, sent an email to her staff explaining why she would not be hosting her show this past weekend after several weeks of having the program preempted for election coverage. The quote-unquote scorching email, that's how it was described by CNN, which is now public, is being cherry-picked in articles, particularly the part where Melissa wrote, quote, I will not be used as a tool for their purposes. I am not a token, mammy, or little brown bobblehead. I really want to encourage people to read the email in its entirety because that one section does not do justice to what she's trying to communicate. Not at all. Instead, she had concerns about the fact that the show, which she describes as unique and valuable, uh, she does not want to sell it short. And she says, quote, I care only about substantive, meaningful, and autonomous work. When we can do that, I will return, not a moment earlier. Now, instead of responding to these concerns, network executives chose instead to simply kill the show, citing the email as, quote-unquote, destructive to our relationship. And a nameless exec speaking to the Washington Post called her, quote, a challenging and unpredictable personality, end quote. Now, it's certainly true that Melissa fought for her vision of what she wanted the show to be, but it's difficult to imagine that a white male host named, I don't know, Joe Scarborough, to use one example, would be attacked so personally and called challenging and unpredictable. It also speaks volumes that such adjectives, challenging, unpredictable, would be seen as insults in the modern news media world instead of high praise. I suppose challenging and unpredictable means decisions like the one she made for what we know was now her final show, a show based around the treatment of homeless people in San Francisco during Super Bowl week and the impact of Beyonce's formation video, instead of her just doing ever more election analysis with campaign spinmeisters. 
MHP was the only Sunday news show to discuss what the possible ramifications could be for Beyonce if she performed the incendiary song later that day at Super Bowl halftime. It, of course, has caused a firestorm in the week since that has yet to die down. She saw it coming. That, in a nutshell, was what made the show so distinctive, because it discussed issues that other shows would not touch, with guests other shows would never dream of booking. It was able to see and often predict what they simply could not. And for what it's worth, I was on that last show, a fact that I'll wear going forward like a badge of honor. It would be difficult to really even describe how upset I am about all this. I'm upset because the staff on the show are some of the kindest people I've had the privilege to meet in an industry where the word kind is not often bandied about. I'm upset because I've met so many of these media anchors, and for a lot of them, the smile dissipates once the camera is turned off. Melissa was so kind off the air, to my mom, to my partner, to the very people that other hosts breeze by. I'm upset because the viewers of the show, the Nerdland community, felt like it was truly their space on network television. I can't tell you how many times people have approached me or came to events where I was speaking because they saw themselves, and by extension me, as part of the Nerdland family. They were overwhelmingly black women as well. Women who felt ownership of a show where they and their concerns were not rendered invisible. But most of all, I'm upset about the voices that will not be heard. A Media Matters graph about diversity on Weekend News Show reported that guests on Fox were 87% white, CBS's Face the Nation 88% white, NBC's Meet the Press 78% white, and on Melissa Harris Perry's show, 45% white. It was also the only show even close to a 50-50 split on gender representation. But MHP also wasn't diversity for diversity's sake. This was a show that introduced us to community leaders, academics, small-town politicians, and musicians that otherwise would never have seen the light of day. And speaking very selfishly, she gave me a platform to speak about sports and society in a way that centered race, class, gender, sexuality, and big business. It was the only place where I was allowed, on Super Bowl Sunday, no less, last year, to write out a scripted commentary I was allowed to deliver on camera that called for NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell to resign. So this is the moment of the program each week when I send a letter to someone whose actions or words have made me just have to respond. But today, a first. I am yielding the floor to Nerdland favorite Dave Zirin. This week, it is Dave who really has something to say and a letter to send. Dave. Don't you hate it when a self-righteous pundit gets in front of a camera and says to someone in power, Sir or madam, if you have any decency, you would resign. Well, allow me to join their ranks. The person in power I'm addressing, the person I'm asking to break out the want ads and find new work, is NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Dear Mr. Goodell, it's me, Dave. After the Being a guest on MHP was always challenging, always unpredictable. And I use those adjectives as the highest praise. Melissa Harris-Perry will be fine. She heads the Anna Julia Cooper Center and holds the Maya Angelou Chair at Wake Forest University, where she lives with her beautiful family. And she'll be back on television when she wants to be, if she wants to be. I'm worried about the rest of us and a media landscape that is now less diverse, less interesting, and less accessible to masses of people in this country. But I want to thank Melissa Harris-Perry and everyone at MHP for showing us that another kind of network television news show was possible. I want to thank her for standing up, not only for herself, but for the show. I want to thank her for pushing the boundaries, even when those boundaries became walls. I'm excited to see what she does next, 
and also excited for the people inspired by her work to step up and show us what they got. The Nerdland community will exist beyond MHP and will continue to inspire those trying to find their voice as well as anger all the right people. Now we have on the line one of the original Melissa Harris Perry Show producers, current MTV News columnist, Jameel Smith. Uh, Jameel, were you surprised at all at how this went down? I was a little bit surprised that uh, it was so sudden. I knew that uh, given the obvious changes that are seeming to happen at MSNBC, both with the uh, contributors and with talent seeming to get a lot, uh, let's just say, a lot lighter, I was not surprised necessarily that Melissa didn't fit into the long-term plans of the network. That said, I thought this was handled exceptionally poorly. And I feel that it's a real shame to not just have this end with, you know, this kind of acrimony on both sides, but also for fans of the show to really be deprived of a fitting goodbye. I remember you tweeted about a week or two ago that you were sad that MHP wasn't on the air. And I remember people responded to that tweet like, what's going on? Do you know something? Now, did you have an inkling a couple weeks ago that there were problems when you were seeing the show preempted? Yes, yes. I knew things uh, from uh, personal discussions, which uh, I'll keep personal, uh, that I could not reveal. And certainly I wanted to call attention to the fact that MSNBC, rather than having Melissa on the air with her branded show, they had instead the Place for Politics, a generic uh, news program that covered uh, the election and other political stories in a more general way. Um, I feel like people should notice when a show like Melissa Harris Perry is off the air. Um, and I think to some degree, maybe they thought, you know, hey, maybe Melissa's got a week off, Joey's hosting in her place, and that's how it is. No, but people should notice that Melissa hasn't been on the air for a couple of weeks now. Granted, I didn't have all the details, but even just as now a viewer of the show, just a viewer, I wanted to have my MHP back. And I wanted to make other people to notice and, and, and perhaps join me in that course. And I don't understand. Um, and just help me and help our, our, our listeners understand here. I get that MSNBC has made this turn to being the place for politics, to focusing on the election, but I don't see why that equals no airtime for Melissa Harris Perry. I mean, this is someone who has, you know, as she put in her email, 20 years experience as, as a student of elections in the United States, someone who'd been on the show before, someone who was even staying at the hotels, for goodness sakes, where MSNBC was staying during the primary season. Mm-hmm. Why does one equal the other? Why does being this place for politics mean you don't have someone like Melissa Harris Perry as a commentator? I don't get the internal logic there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question for Andy Lack and Phil Griffin to answer. Uh, But I certainly know that MSNBC is going to sorely miss her expertise during this election season. You just do not have that many political scientists who are around and have the kind of television skills that Melissa has. And, you know, not just as a host, but also as a commentator. And I just think that given her depth of experience, her depth of knowledge, and also the intersectionality and other cultural critiques that she can bring to the table, I just think are very, very unique. And unfortunately, they're unique. We need more Melissa Harris Perry's on the air. But as it stood, MSNBC had one. 
And right. apparently, given you know this sort of new paradigm, uh, maybe they didn't know what to do with it. Why did this have to happen? Is this about marginalizing women of color? Is it about marginalizing a specific set of politics that, as you said, are rooted in intersectional scholarship? What, what, what is it that makes them look at Melissa Harris Perry and say, you're not part of this family any longer? Well, let me let me be clear. I don't want to ascribe any like racial uh, motives to the network's decision to eventually remove her from the air. I certainly can't speak to their internal decisions, having you know left MSNBC in early 2015. But that said, I think what we have to take away from this is the sadness of seeing one of very very few black women voices on a cable news channel essentially taken away, ripped away from us unceremoniously and understand the value of the show that she was hosting. And I'm granted, yes, I, I, I'm biased. I was one of the very first staffers that Melissa hired. So I was there helping pick the colors for the show and, you know, debating what the name of it should be. Um, that's how far I go back with it. But I feel like what we've lost here and what we should take away from here is the urgency to the same perspective that Melissa was representing on her show. The same, you know, opportunities that she's giving to, say, a, a mother from Philadelphia who was on food stamps or uh, to sports writers to talk politics. <laughs> now, I'm confident that there will be another outlet for her shortly. And I feel like she's inspired enough people in, you know, in the media sphere and out to demand that kind of coverage, to demand that kind of uh, expertise on the air. So while this is a setback, I think it may be, in fact, a temporary one. I feel like, you know, she helped change the game in a noticeable way. And I just don't think that the old way of doing things in cable news, where your commentators are primarily white and male, your hosts are primarily white and male, and your, your analysis lacks intersectionality, I don't think that that's going to be enough anymore. And I think that what you're seeing here and the response from her fan base is a demand for that to be a, the new normal, essentially, in cable news and in, in other broadcast spheres. So we're going to do our best here at MTV News to make sure we integrate that, um, that perspective and that approach. And I think that other networks are going to be doing the same if they know what's, uh, what's good for them. And, and last question for Jamil, and this is, I think, something, I think I'm speaking a lot for the people who listen to my podcast because it's a question I've gotten should we expect people we love at MSNBC who are still at MSNBC, who we believe share our values at MSNBC, to speak out for Melissa? Do they have the freedom to do that? Because you could perhaps could speak better to this. Like how much First Amendment, I guess we'll say, is there in the kind of high-pressured cable news world for someone to say, hey, this happened – I love to Melissa. I'm not quitting my job in protest, but I think we should recognize that a loss here really did take place. Um, I think to a certain degree, you did see that on Twitter. Tamron Hall and Joya and Reed voiced support for Melissa in an admirable way. And I'm, I'm glad they took the step to do that. And I know Melissa herself was appreciative of it. I definitely think that, um, you know, first of all, the First Amendment doesn't necessarily apply uh -huh. when you're uh, talking about speech within the corporate context. People are forbidden to speak about a number of topics by contracts or simply by internal politics. So I can't necessarily put that onus on 
um, say, you know, Chris Hayes or Rachel Maddow or um, Chuck Todd or whomever it may be at MSNBC to speak out in protest for Melissa. People have jobs and contracts, and I understand and respect that. The best thing that Chris and Rachel and all the other hosts at MSNBC can do is to simply embody Melissa's approach to storytelling, to the news, to booking, to be frank, let's be, let's be real on that, to making sure that the panels are diverse. That's really the best form of protest I think that they can do, is to make sure that the approach, the Nerdland approach to cable news is replicated throughout MSNBC. Hashtag Nerdland forever. Indeed. Jamil, thanks so much for joining us, man. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jamil Smith. You can read the full email from Melissa Harris-Perry to her staff at a link in the description of this podcast. And that email was posted first by Jamil Smith over at Medium. Uh, it was sent to him by Melissa Harris-Perry. He ran it with her permission. Uh, and we'll be back in 60 seconds to speak to NFL Hall of Famers Willie Lanier and Ken Houston. But first, a quick word from FreshBooks. Tax time is hell on earth for me. I freelance a ton, and traditionally it's been a mess. That's why I am so grateful that through this show, I found FreshBooks. For the best way to manage your books and make tax season easy, get FreshBooks, a terrific tool that makes creating and sending invoices extremely simple for freelancers like me and small business owners. FreshBooks stands out where it really counts, getting paid. You can create and send professional invoices in just 30 seconds. You'll see exactly when your client looked at the invoice you've emailed. You can track the status of all your outstanding invoices. It's what we've been waiting for. FreshBooks can even send late payment reminders to clients automatically, which means we're not wasting our time chasing down and fighting clients for payment. The results speak for themselves. FreshBooks users get paid five days faster on average. Don't just take my word for it. Right now, FreshBooks is offering Edge of Sports listeners 30 days of unrestricted use, totally free, and you don't need a credit card to sign up. Just go to FreshBooks.com slash Edge and enter Edge in the How You Heard About Us section. That's FreshBooks.com slash Edge. Enter Edge in the How You Heard About Us section. You'll thank me in the morning. Our next guest is an eight-time All-Pro selection, a Super Bowl champion with the Kansas City Chiefs, a member of the NFL's 75th anniversary team, and an enshrinee in the 1986 class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Willie Lanier. Richmond, of course, is the, you know, the capital of the, the old Confederacy. What was it like to grow up in the South at that time? It was like growing up in the capital of the old Confederacy because <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was segregated, as one could imagine, and a very little interaction uh, from black to white. Uh, you continued your journeys through life trying to make sense out of something that was obviously not as sensible once you got older. I think at about 12 or 13, we were doing a paper on careers, and I remember that I initially had said I wanted to be an architect, but in trying to find a black architect to interview, I couldn't find any. And that was really one of the first times, other than knowing things were segregated, but realizing that certain opportunities, you didn't see anyone that might look like you in that same kind of profession. Now, you, of course, went to to Morgan State. Uh, What was it like to go to an HBCU? How did that help prepare you uh, to not just play in the NFL, but prepare you for the world? 
we at that time were a part of the change. We were a part of the 63 to 67 class. The weekend that I went to Morgan was the same weekend that Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech was going on in Washington, D.C. So that was my start. And the things that Martin Luther King said were real and legitimate and true. So you still understood that the ideal was to get a education at a credit institution of higher learning. And doing that, it would give you the ability to compete with anyone, anywhere, based on your academic training. And therefore, you were going to work harder at it. The thing about the segregated South, Richmond, Morgan, was that you, the students, the professors, all understood that you were fighting an uphill battle. Therefore, you had to put in the work. Mm. You had to put in the work to be equal and more equal. Mm. Not athletically, but academically, because that was going to be the one that was going to drive the future. It was a masterful job that professors, black of education, high school and college, did for that generation of individuals Mm -hmm. to then allow them to not only have the degree, but then have the confidence they could be too equal. Because without the equal moment, you still find yourself subject to a question of confidence and how do you perform? Mm. One thing, people could see it in sport because it was transparent. But you have a job, you are hired, and you're trying to maintain equal, maintain better, maintain promotion. Big challenge. Yeah. I mean, was there a moment at Morgan State where you felt like you had a realization that, like, hey, I'm not just here for an education, but I can actually make a career out of playing football? Did that confidence come in college? or No, no, no. It's interesting. I never had a moment while I was in college that sport was going to be the driver. Never. Wow. That thought never crossed my mind. Understand, there were no black middle linebackers playing in professional football. Right. That was the reality. So if I was an inside linebacker, there was nobody who looked like me playing. Mm-hmm. When I grew up in Richmond, the pro team that was in the South was the Redskins. Right. They didn't have any black players playing while I was growing up. The first one was Bobby Mitchell. I was a freshman in college before he played. So it was illogical to think in terms of a sport and America having an opening in something called sport? No, sir. It was not even a consideration. So w- when did it come to you? Was it draft day? Was it training camp where you first thought that you could do this? <laughs> no, but it was kind of interesting. What happened is that in my second year at Morgan, I had a knee injury in the third game of that season. So I was out for the rest of the season, which meant that I certainly was going to get my degree because that was the important thing that had to be done because this thing called sports would change at any time. So I was a business major, and being a business major, uh, the league was moving toward the common draft, and the common draft was going to be the merger of the NFL and the NFL. Mm-hmm. And I did a senior class paper on the monopolistic practices of the National Football League <laughs> and followed all the activities in Washington that Emmanuel Feller chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee was filibustering, trying to block the merger because he felt that it was anti-competitive. So all of my activities at that time was following from a business standpoint. And that's how I came to appreciate whatever the opportunity might be 
from the business side of what it was, what it could provide, job opportunities that the AFL was going to provide, and apparently it was going to be to more individuals who were African-American, which meant that that might include me. Might. Hmm. Now, of course, when, when you won the Super Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs, just to do a quick skip ahead here, I know you were the last uh, AFL team to win a Super Bowl. And before the, the f- complete merger, and you guys wore, the, I believe, those AFL stickers to, as motivation going into that game. W- were you thinking at all about the, the college paper you wrote before that game and thinking about NFLs? I always thought about, I always thought about the college paper that I had written. <laughs> I, I ended up being player rep while I was in Kansas City. I started an MBA program in Kansas City, the University of Missouri at Kansas City, my rookie year. Because of a head injury, I had to take an incomplete. But I met a gentleman named Rick Poscher, who's with Great Western Bank in Shawnee Mission, Kansas, today in that class. And he's a banker, and we still do business together. Wow. I, I got. Is there any connection between your affinity for the civil rights movement and the black freedom struggle and your desire to be a player rep for the chiefs? Uh, the point was one of equality. So all of the comments that you made surrounding that, for me, it was one of equality. For me, it was one of the constitution saying, I have the life, liberty, pursuit of happiness equal to anybody else in this country. And I defer to no one about my reach for that. It was one of seeing Prince Edward County, 50 miles from Richmond, shutter their school system from 59 to 64 instead of complying with the edict from the Supreme Court on Brown versus Board of Education. So it was always one of equal. Wow. And if it were not equal, I had the responsibility to speak to it because it was always, I would say, odious is the word I used. You know, how can we be a democracy and say we are who we are? And all people are to be treated something called equal, and it's not equal. Wow. You know, pe- people, uh, when they speak about you, they speak about, you know, the great play, the fact that you're in the Hall of Fame and your time with the Chiefs. But I don't think it's said enough that you're in a lot of ways the, the, the defensive version of, a, say, a, a Willie Thrower or a Warren Moon. I mean, th- there were just no black middle linebackers, and that's the quarterback position on the defense. How did you, no, were not. How did you handle that? How, how were you able to break that wall? What did you have to prove? Did people try to move you to a different position? How were you able to make that transition into the NFL and well, be accepted in that quarterback position? Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question, and just this year, 10 members of Morgan State's team were recognized at the Citrus Bowl, which is the predecessor to the Tangerine Bowl, because 50 years ago, December 10, 1966, Morgan State played all-white college at the Tangerine Bowl in Orlando, Florida, and it was the first historically black college and still the only to play an NC2A-sanctioned bowl game. Mm-hmm. So we were recognized down there this year. And it made me think back to the fact that on December 10th, 1966, was the first time I played a full game against an all-white opponent. Seven months later, I was in a pro football training camp mm-hmm. competing for a position where there had been no one who looked like me competing for it. The reality that I had was that I wasn't the best to ever have an opportunity. They just didn't allow it. So my thought was that I don't know how the coaches there feel 
deeply about me as a black man. But if I'm able to remove from my performance errors, and errors became penalties in my mind, then if I do that with it being transparent, at least that forces them to reconsider if they want to be less than honorable in their decision-making. So with that, over the next 11 years, I had five penalties in 11 years. Mm. And I tracked and I tracked them judiciously to try to be better, showing that I do not, do not err. And if I do not err, that has to mean something. So that was just a part of the process of being comfortable with your own mind, being comfortable with the fact that God had given me the gifts that I had and not allowing people to try to get into your head. And at times that happened at later time that I was in Kansas City. But the reality was that if I could become the starter on a Super Bowl team from the prior year, from a time that there were no blacks playing that position full-time in the league, and the fourth game of my rookie year, I become a starter, that's something that I already bought to the activity that was not offered by the team in Kansas City. But those were gifts and skills that already were possessed by me. Now, I'm sure you've seen some of the recent statistics about the number of NFL players who end up broke within a decade of their retirement. Some have the figure as high as 80%. And you were able to make this transition from the playing world to the real world that really started while you were playing, as, as you referenced, you know, taking MBA classes and the like of it. Um, what, what, can you, what advice can you give? What can you say about your experience that speaks to how one can navigate from that unreal world of playing pro football to the real world of just living your life? The undergirding of the reality is that if you have degrees from accredited institutions of higher learning, it gives you the confidence to restart, restart, restart. If you don't have the degree, I don't know what you do. You've mentioned two things in this interview. One is the way you were able to live you know, a life of the mind, both on the playing field and off the playing field and after your career. And you also mentioned uh, having a head injury your, your first year. Do, do, does any of the science about concussions and the rest of it that we're learning give you pause about recommending a football life for the young generation coming up now? I feel, I understand what I will say to you better than anybody that you'll talk to about that issue. Please. Trying to be dominant in Kansas City, weighing 245 pounds and having quickness and leverage and understanding about how to play the game. Tackling it, tackling it properly, putting your head between the numbers like everybody was trained. Then as the players get bigger from high school to college to the pros, you're creating greater impacts. And as you create greater impacts, you don't know how low a blow it takes to tear a blood vessel. Now, this is where this whole issue occurs. And I'm on the safety committee with the NFL. So I'm playing probably the eighth game of my rookie year, last game in San Diego. I dive over a blocker to make a tackle. The knee coming up hits me in the top of the forehead. And that creates acceleration, deceleration of your brain inside the skull. Well, at that time, I'm not knocked unconscious. I make I play the next rest of the game, I wasn't ever woozy, if that's the word. I didn't feel dinged. It just felt like it was a blow. That wasn't as hard as other blows. And if it were, shake it off, I make the call, keep on playing. So 
I didn't say anything uh, to anybody because I didn't think there was anything safe. Uh, you shower, you get on the plane, you go back to Kansas City. We practice all week. The next week, we're playing in Kansas City, and I'm calling the defense, and I collapse. And when I collapse, I'm out for two hours. Wow. And I, when I wake up in the emergency room, I realize there's something substantial, neurologically, has happened. Because I was out for two hours. And I didn't get all the best neurological evaluations immediately. I started having some vertical double vision. An eye doctor for the team at that time said, tackle the clear image, which obviously was improper. <laughs> and a week later, I'm back on the field after being unconscious or won that game. And a week later, without all the neurologicals being done, and I have double vision that I'm trying to make a tackle, and I get the wrong this quarterback, John Hale, San Diego. So, therefore, I take myself out of the game. I turn, come to the sideline, the physician is Dr. Albert Miller, team physician. I take myself out of the game, so I'm going to find what's wrong with me. So they send me to Mayo Clinic that next week in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm told that I have had a previous undiagnosed severe hematoma. Wow. So you're, you, you have a serious brain bleed. Well, y- yes. That's, Subdural that's hematoma what it is. is bleeding out of the brain through the skull. That, that, that's what it is. Wow. I asked the doctor at Mayo. Is it possible for me to have an unequivocal clean bill of health? He said no, because I had survived it, not by medical intervention. So I decide that if I play again, I have to be 90% safe for me based on how I played the game. I never would have played again. So all the work that came for the Hall of Fame and all that came after that injury. So this is only about me and how I had to manage something that was dynamic in its own way. And I chose to make that decision, and that's how it all worked out. And and how does this story inform your beliefs in the 21st century about whether or not young people should play, whether or not kids should play, whether or not you'd want your own grandchildren to play? How does it inform your thoughts now? This is the thought. I know that it only takes a low blow to tear a blood vessel. So it's not about equipment. I don't care what kind of equipment you create. It's about the personal decision that the individual makes. You can buy your child a car with all of the airbag technology that is available. They go 90 miles an hour, hit a pole, you'll go visit them in a casket. There is safety as this committee that we have, Madden and Ronnie Law, the co-chairs, and we talk about all the safety about the league. As long as what I am saying is being said to every youngster who starts to play on a continuum, then the awareness of the reality of what you're doing is constantly in front of you. Then we would be doing that which is acceptable in my view, the same way that you continue to talk to your children about the safety and their driving habits. Mm -hmm. You don't stop. You continue to say that. You don't stop. You continue to say it. When it is not said, it's when I would tell the parents to draw a line. Wow. Well, Mr. Lanier, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. This is just an embarrassment of riches. Our next guest is a 12-time Pro Bowl selection, another member of the NFL's 75th anniversary all-time team, another enshrinee in the 1986 Pro Football Hall of Fame, the legendary 
Ken Houston. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to grow up in the Texas of your day? We grew up in a time that was what it was. And at that time, it was a segregated Texas, and you had limited colleges that you could attend. But prior to that, the uh, people that had been successful in football, I know our our, uh, high school coach had attended Prairie View. And so you had the, uh, we call it, you call it now the Black Southwest Athletic Conference. Mm -hmm. And uh, so all of the uh, people of color, for the most part, went to those schools and had tremendous talent. And they were successful. Prairie View was very successful. As a matter of fact, all the uh, SWAC teams were very successful in graduating their athletes. So you didn't go there looking to play professional football. It was my way of uh, getting out of school because I always wanted to be a coach or a teacher. So I went there and followed that game plan. And uh, professional football was a byproduct of what I went to school for. Before I did research on you for this interview, I had known about you from friends in Houston, who, in Houston, Texas, actually, who, who uh, yeah. talked about you and said that you are the greatest football player to ever come out of the state of Texas, which is one hell of a high praise, given the players yeah, yeah. that state has produced. And then I, I, so I knew this about you, and then I researched you, and I read that you were only offered one scholarship, which kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I was, uh, I, and that was in basketball. It was in basketball. Uh, I was was in basketball, (laughs) yeah. I had a friend of mine, uh, Wiley Smith, who was a real good offensive player. And uh, he wanted to, uh, they would recruit him to go to Prairie View, and uh, he wouldn't go without me. And I always tell people I'm the other end of a package deal because I went down there. He was an offensive tackle, and I was an offensive center. And when I got there, uh, I saw guys that I played against in high school. Alvin Reed um, was a defensive end. He went on to play tight end for 10 years in the league. Um, Ellen Aldrich, who was a center from uh, Eagle Lake, uh, he went on to be a defensive end. Um, all the guys there basically, well, Otis Taylor, to me, was the greatest player from the state of Texas. Mm. And uh, Go to Jackson State, you play Walter Payton, and they had a uh, male blonde, and you go to Grambling, they just, you, it was a who's who's list. Uh, when I go into uh, the Professional Football Hall of Fame, when I go in and we talk with those guys, uh, we pretty well played against each other in college. Right. For the most part. You went to a, a historically black college. Uh, what, right. what, what was it like in terms of the balance of sports and academics to go to an HBCU in the 1960s? Well, it was it was more academics. We didn't have a lot of guys uh, flunking out. I, I remember the year we won the uh, SWAC uh, championship, that must have been 63 or 64. We were on the road about uh, two weeks. I remember we went to California and Nebraska and some other places. It was tough, but the uh, teachers would insist that you get your work. And uh, we had guys like Ezell Seals and Jim Kearney and George Dearborn who were excellent students, and they uh, were the captains of the team. And they made you get your work. You know, I mean, they they knew that if you didn't pass, then you couldn't be a part of the team. So they had set that pattern. So when you got to Prairie View, it was a pattern already set. You know, people ask me now, if you had a choice, and I said, well, if I had a choice, I'd go back to Prairie View. Uh, you know, I met my wife there. We've been married 49 years um, as of a couple of days ago. And all of uh, my friends were there, and they, you know, had very successful marriages. So it was more of a life school than it was a football school, even though it had a great football team. 
Wow. You know, you know, we hear so much when we speak about, say, the civil rights movement as existing in the southeast of the United States. And you don't hear a lot right. of, about it a lot in Texas. What, when were you aware, as particularly going to a historically black college, that there was this thing called a civil rights movement? And how did you feel it insofar as it impacted your life? Well, uh, I was, it was in 1963, I guess, uh, when, they, when they started the marches and stuff like that. But, you know, growing up in a segregated um, South, uh, you had the colored and the white restrooms, you had the colored and the white water fountains. You were aware of it, I think, uh, probably thinking back on it now, when we got our books um, in our classes, they were already full of names. Mm-hmm. And so that means that we were behind in terms of um, education, but our teachers were way above that, you know. And I look at the teachers that we had, and you couldn't compare them to uh, anyone because they were head and shoulders, and you are going to get that education. Not only are you going to get that education at school, you're going to get it in the neighborhoods, and they taught us how to survive that particular time. And um, the way of life we all know was wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's a lot of things that are wrong now, but if you have those people with that attitude, they see it, they've lived it, and uh, then you try to pass it along. And I, 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 even though things are, are different now, there are still, in my opinion, a lot of things that are not right that have become a way of life that people don't understand that they're even doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you have to you have to educate people as to what they're doing. Because there, you know, basically when you grow up, there's no other way of life other than the one that you know. Right. And so once you get out, then you start to see stuff, you start to talk, and you start to cross boundaries and stuff like that. And you realize we're one and the same. So why did this ever happen? And uh, I've been asked the question, aren't things getting better for black people? And my thought is, if you're as old as I am, which I'll turn 72 on my next birthday. So if you're as old as I am, why did I have to wait 72 years for things to get better? <laughs> we were both born men, you know. So I was born with the same right as everyone else. So I, I, don't, I just don't think I can be put in a category as to where that I have to wait. And so what I've learned to do with my life is just go ahead and live. I, I, I've been free from the beginning. Ken Houston, I really do appreciate the time. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much to all our guests this week. Before we go, our Just Stand Up Award goes to a Division Three football team over at Claremont McKenna in California where I recently spoke. 90% of their team took part in what's called teal dot training, which is a program that coaches would-be bystanders to intervene in situations involving sexual assault. It also involves holding forums related to Title IX policy and responsible use of alcohol on campus, which so often presages instances of sexual assault. 
assault. I'm calling this just stand up because even though 90% of the football team's taken part in it, what I found out is that very few people on that campus knew that they had taken part in it. And so listen to me. If you are part of trying to build a culture on your campus that is trying to stop sexual assault, you actually have a responsibility to be public about that, to be loud about that. And to all teams out there, If you are trying to build a culture on your campus and using the platform of sports to build a culture on your campus against rape, sexual assault, and violence against women, email us at edgeofsports at slate.com and we will publicize your efforts. The more we know about what we're doing, the more we can actually build a movement as men to end rape. I want to thank all of our guests this week, Jameel Smith, Willie Lanier, Ken Houston. I really want to thank Georgia Tala and Carl Francis at the NFLPA. And thank you for listening to the Edge of Sports podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can always email us at edgeofsports at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you never have to miss an episode. Edge of Sports is produced by Dan Bloom for the Panoply Network. Our intern is Dustin Foote. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.